So we've been uh, spending the summer Sundays on a series simply titled Jesus. And um, on the, on the uh, thing here, you can see the different names and the different titles of Jesus. And, and we started with the anticipation of Jesus as uh, being everlasting. And in the Old Testament, the anticipation of him coming as our Messiah, the anointed one, and looking forward to the arrival of, of Jesus and uh, and just the how God made this promise to Eve. We started way back in Genesis, uh, the very beginning of the Bible, and God made this promise to Eve uh, that one of her seed would eventually come and crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent was striking at his heel. And we now see that coming to pass in Jesus. And then God made a covenant with Noah that there would be a perfect sacrifice, and with Abraham and with Moses, and he continued his covenant that there would seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all nations, and we looked at that, how Jesus and Christianity has spread around the world and uh, has been a blessing to all nations, and essentially how God in the Old Testament established the history of, of Israel and the events of Israel that all kept pointing towards and foreshadowing the arrival of Jesus, that the people of, that God raised up and served as his people are a picture of Jesus. We looked at people like Joseph and like uh, Boaz and Noah and others who were redeemers of their people. And then from anticipation, we moved into incarnation, the real historical person of Jesus. Why? This was last week, if you can remember. I barely remember because I was on medication at the time <laughs> for my cold. Um, but I faintly remember that we talked about uh, why did... Why Jesus? Like, why God at all? Why, why would God leave heaven where he was perfectly satisfied, perfect in love, perfect in everything that he needed, um, perfect for all eternity, and yet Jesus would leave heaven and come to earth and come to be humiliated on a criminal's cross by his own creation? Why would he do that? And last week we learned, among other things, that, that Jesus came to do away with what I was just talking about, to do away with religion. He came to break down the barrier between God and mankind and to put an end to all the ideas that we can somehow earn our way up to God, which all the other religions in the world will try to tell you, that you have to do enough good or your good has to outweigh your bad or you have to serve in a certain way. And if you serve enough and earn enough credit, then you will somehow pass the test in order to get into heaven and reach the afterlife. And Jesus came to do away with all of that and say, this is not about what you will be able to accomplish because you cannot. It's what I have already done for you. It's what I've already attained by going to the cross to pay the price for your debt and for your sin. And so Jesus came to establish a new covenant, completely different on divine accomplishment. And Jesus came so we could know God and be known. Philip, you remember, he asked Jesus to show him the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And Jesus said he was the bread of life. And if you have the bread, you have life. And life no longer comes through the law, but life now comes through me personally. It comes through, through Jesus, not through law-keeping. And then Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I have to stay with you in your house. The God of the universe needs to come and stay with you because you need to know me. You have to know who I am, Zacchaeus, to achieve what you're hoping for in your heart. And then Jesus allows the sinful woman to anoint his feet with oil and perfume. And then Jesus washes his own disciples' feet. And Jesus engages with the woman at the well with the most personal and awkward questions about her husband's past and present who isn't her husband. Jesus, in summary, came to make it personal. Jesus came 
to get into our lives personally and to know us and so that we could know God. And that's why Christianity isn't a religion. It's not about our achievement. It's about Jesus and what he has done. And so this is how you know you have a personal relationship with him because he starts to change you personally. Consider it this way. If you've known Jesus for a long time, but in no part of your life, private life especially, if Jesus hasn't stopped you from doing something that you would normally have done, or if Jesus hasn't caused you to do something that you would have normally done, then he hasn't really affected you personally yet. You start to know when Jesus affects you personally, when he's a real personal friend of yours, when you privately stop doing things that you would have normally loved doing because you know that's not following Jesus, or when you decide to do something that you never would have done because you know that that's following Jesus. That's when you start to know that Jesus is actually affecting you personally. And if he's not affecting you that personally, then you may not really know Jesus because Jesus came to transform us to stop what we were doing and start us doing some new things, not because it's rules we have to keep, but because we find him beautiful and we find what he loves, we love, and we want to do those things. And so Jesus came to make it personal. But there's another way. I just want to stay on this theme for one more week of this personal nature of God. There's another way that Jesus came to show us that God is a personal God and not just to get awkwardly into our lives and start molding us into the image he intended us for and having those really awkward conversations with us when we know we're doing things we shouldn't or should be doing things we should. He means to get into our lives that way too. But Jesus came into our lives personally to, en- to enter and to confront our suffering. And so today we're going to look at a pretty significant account in the ministry of Jesus from John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, it's the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a very well-known account of Jesus in his ministry and in his life. And it's a text that we could and we maybe will have two or three different attempts at to cover the different things of what is being taught here. But here's the situation that I want to look at today, very specifically in this story. Not so much about Lazarus, but you'll see. And here's the situation for those of you maybe need a reminder. Jesus has been in his teaching ministry at this point for nearly three years. He's nearing the end of what he knows is the end of his ministry and the end of his life. And he's been healing the sick and he's been casting out demons and he's been teaching and he's been correcting the Pharisees on how they're misunderstanding the law. And he's been revealing the meaning of the law and he's been teaching people about himself and who he is, the bread of life and and the living water and all these things for many months. And it's getting to the point that he has a lot of enemies at this point with the religious people. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? He's been going around Galilee, Jerusalem, teaching, and the Pharisees at each point are getting more and more frustrated with him and just about fed up with this rabbi, Jesus. But he gets news from La- that Lazarus, a friend of his, is sick. And Lazarus will soon die. But he tells his disciples ahead of time, Lazarus isn't going to end up dead. Okay, But instead, God will be glorified and the Son of God will be glorified out of this. And he and the disciples start heading back slowly to Judea. Even though the people are looking for him to stone him to death, he's going back anyway to his friend. And Lazarus now has been dead four days when they arrive. And we look at John 11, 20 to 29. And just listen as I recount the story now. As Jesus arrives. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And therefore, when Mary came to Jesus, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, and notice it's the exact same question, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? And so Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, and now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, But Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always, I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, this is in many ways a strange story, of course. And Jesus said that Lazarus won't die, and then Lazarus does die. But then we can see that, that Jesus has a purpose in allowing Lazarus to die, that he would bring glory to God and glory to himself, and um, that it would reveal the glory of Jesus. But then when Jesus arrives, it's interesting. What I, what I want to pick out today is noticing the difference between the response to Martha and the response to Mary in very different ways. And you notice that both Martha and Mary make the exact same statement. When Jesus shows up, Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. To which Jesus replies, you notice how he replies to Martha. He replies with with sort of a profound statement of truth. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And, And that's his response to Martha. And Martha acknowledges her belief, and and then she goes to her sister. But then when Jesus meets Mary, she makes the exact same statement that Martha did in verse 32. Mary approaches Jesus and says the exact same thing. Says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But this time, Jesus does not respond the same way. Even though it's the exact same statement. Jesus reacts very differently, and instead of repeating his statement of truth and assurance to Mary, it says, and we'll just cover those few verses, it says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and Jesus wept. And he asked where he was laid, and the people took him on, amazed at how much Jesus 
had loved Lazarus. They commented on his love in verse 36. So today, out of all of this, what I just want to focus on briefly before we go to communion is why the different responses? Why the exact same statement from two sisters, but different responses from Jesus? And I'm not going to go so much into the first response. I have an idea. We may come back and look deeper into the differences in another sermon. But but I just want to focus on that second response. Why is Jesus weeping? What is Jesus troubled by? And you might think, well, it's obvious. His, his friend's dead and, and people are upset because it's a funeral. But, but Jesus had already told his disciples days ago that Lazarus was not going to end up dead, that he, that he wasn't really going to really die. And, and Jesus knows at that point what he's about to do in like a minute. He knows that this is not going to stay a funeral. Jesus is fully aware of the fact that all this weeping that's going on is going to suddenly turn to joy because Lazarus is going to come from the tomb. But here Jesus, it says, is deeply troubled in his spirit and is weeping at this sorrow. What's he, what can he be, what can he be weeping about? It just doesn't, I mean, it, it, it makes sense sort of on the surface, surface, but the word that's used there of his sorrow is unusual. And it's unusual that he, knowing what he was about to reveal, that his answer to Mary wouldn't be more similar to his, his statement to Martha. It's like, I am the resurrection and the life. Don't you believe that? Just wait and see what I'm going to do. Right? Just, just wait. But instead of, of answering Mary that way, he weeps. And so I think we have here in this scene, this, this little snapshot, an extremely personal moment of Jesus among his friends. And I think what we can get out of it this morning is a very unique look into the heart of Jesus, the Son of God, but also Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus in his flesh. Jesus our Savior. Jesus the human who is weeping with his fellow brothers and sisters. And this is what I think it is. And it's not explicit in the text, so you'll just have to bear with me on my my trying to dig deeper into what it is Jesus could be weeping over here, given that he knows what's going to happen and, and given the verb that's used here for his sorrow. Jesus, I think, in, is weeping in two ways. The first way is that Jesus is weeping not just for Lazarus's death and his funeral, but at this point, Jesus is confronted with and Jesus is weeping for all death and all funerals. Jesus can see the sorrow. It says he sees Mary weeping and he sees the crying of the people that are with him. He sees the sorrow of the people around him and their tears and their despair. And Jesus, because he is Jesus, the Son of God, he can see the corruption caused by death, not just in Lazarus, not just in this tomb, but in all tombs, in all funerals, in all time. Jesus can see the sorrow and the despair and the corruption of all death. Death is the great enemy of mankind that must be defeated. And so you can maybe imagine it this way. This is what I imagine is... Is, is sort of going on in Jesus' mind, but maybe magnified 10,000 times because of what he as the Son of God is aware of. It's how we may feel at a funeral as we consider not just that one death of the funeral that we're at, but we considered all the funerals that we've been to and all the funerals maybe that are yet to happen, and we have that sorrow over just the very enemy of death and that we have to confront this despair again. And we consider that even as we think of Rolanda, and we think of Lindsay, and we think of uh, the loss in their family. And 
my wife Wendy actually just uh, came back from a funeral on Saturday. Uh, you may have read about it, the boy that, um, excuse me, went over the high falls uh, in, uh, not Bancroft, the other way, high falls by the highway there, Bracebridge, that's it, Michael, uh, was uh, the son of a very close friend of Wendy's. And uh, so we, we confront this and we feel this sense of our sorrow and our despair and our weeping over death. Or you think about how a doctor or a nurse, and we have lots of nurses here, how they must feel many times when they go to work and they're working hard in their ward or their floor and they lose another patient yet again. And it's never just a job, right? It's just you fight and you care and you medicate and you rehabilitate and you do all the therapy and yet another patient dies on your floor again. And at some point there's a feeling I can imagine when you're just sick of death. And I think that's what Jesus was feeling here. I think that's why he was weeping. Because he could see not just this funeral, he could see all the funerals. He could see not this death and this corruption, but he could see all the death and corruption of all mankind and what must be done to defeat it. And there is anger there and anger at death. Not just one specific death, but all death. And where do I get the sense of this? And it's in this word that's used twice here, and it's a bit poorly translated in most translations. It's the Greek word... I have to prepare for it. Embry meomai, deeply moved. Embry meomai. And if you look at that translation, the proper translation of embry meomai is actually a snorting anger like a horse or an ox. It's a it's a it's the it's the snorting anger or it's the it's the resentment, the indignation, um, the the deep uh, feeling that you would have if you were just indignant or you were angry at something. And it's translated here that he was deeply moved. But if you look at the word used in other places, like in Mark 14:15, where the woman was anointing Jesus' oil, uh, feet with oil and uh, with perfume, and the Pharisees and the people at the party, it was the exact same word. They were angry at her. They were snorting with indignation like a horse or an ox would snort because they were angry at this woman for what she was doing. And so it gets translated a little bit differently here, but really what it means is Jesus was indignant. Jesus was angry at death. He was angry at this funeral. He was angry at what was going on. Death was not God's idea. Death was not natural. Death was never intended for mankind. Death came into the world by Satan and by sin, and death is the enemy, and Jesus is weeping, and Jesus is angry that this is what's going on and that there is this sorrow and that there is this death. And he has to defeat it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, 26, Paul says of Jesus, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so Jesus approaches this tomb angry at death. He's weeping and he's angry, not because of Lazarus, but because of the suffering that death and all forms of death has brought into the world. And Jesus is allowing himself to feel the sorrow and enter into the suffering of the people around him. And so that's why when you look at Jesus, you can't look at Jesus just as, well, he was God, you know, and he sort of had this Teflon guard armor, God armor around him. And of course he could go through life the way he, that he did because he was, he was Jesus and he was God. No, that's, that's not how God came. God came in the flesh. God came with a human heart 
God came as Jesus and Jesus came to enter into our sorrow and our anger at death, at the enemy that we face and the despair that we go through. And in this little story here, we see that Jesus enters into our sorrow. So that's the first way, the first thing that I think he's crying about and he's weeping about and he's angry about. He's just angry about all death, all funerals for all time. Because it's not meant to be that way. And then secondly, Jesus is weeping over his own death and his own sacrifice, which he knows now is coming. Jesus knows, as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, that the power that he has to do this miracle for Lazarus is because of what he is going to do on the cross in a few weeks. The death of death is on the cross of Jesus Christ. And the people here are asking, can't this man who cured the blind also save Lazarus? And the answer is, of course he can, but they don't understand what they're talking about. They don't understand what Jesus has to go through in order to be able to defeat death finally for all. And in raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is weeping over his own suffering and his own death that is to come. And he knows that this miracle will seal his fate when he demonstrates his power over death here with Lazarus. And this is why we could go back to this story many times. There's a lot hinging on this. Jesus knows that he is setting in motion the events that will lead to his ultimate victory over death. But that can only come by him passing through the cross and the suffering of the cross. And I notice this from John, if you keep reading down in 1153, John makes a point after the story of saying and recording that right after this miracle in 1153, that's when the plot to kill Jesus begins. Because all these enemies that he had been creating, all these Pharisees, all these people that were upset with him, they saw what happened here. They, they heard what was said. And they saw what Jesus did. And they knew exactly what this meant. And the conspiracy and the plot to make sure that Jesus died goes into full gear right after this. And I'm sure Jesus is aware of that. Just like when he turned the water into wine in, at the wedding at Canaan, and he uh, explained to his mother, it's like, it's not my time yet, I shouldn't really be doing this at this point. Jesus knows that, that when he does these things, he sets things in motion. He's not unaware of what is going on spiritually behind what is going on physically. And so I think here when we see Jesus weeping and Jesus angry, Jesus is weeping over what he has to do for mankind, what he has to go to, to the cross, to accomplish this miracle and to accomplish the greater miracle of allowing us all to have a personal relationship with him and a personal relationship with God. And so here is Jesus, eyes filled with tears, weeping with Mary and the rest of the family as he approaches the tomb, knowing that their sorrow is going to be turned to joy. He knows that they're going to be thrilled because Lazarus is going to come back to life and they're going to have him again. But he is weeping anyway in anger and in sorrow over the cruelty and the suffering of death. And he is weeping and and in sorrow over his own suffering and his own sacrifice that he now faces in order to win this victory over death, the final enemy. And that's why Christianity is not a religion. That's why the good news of Jesus Christ is not that there is a God and we can somehow strive to measure up to this distant God who is way up in heaven and we have to work really hard to go to get to Him. That's not what Christianity is about. But that there is a God who has come down in the flesh into His own creation to enter into our suffering and to weep with us and be angry with us at the suffering and despair of death in this world. And not only weep with us and be angry with us, but to weep and suffer and go through his own death, his own sacrifice that he faces on the cross in order to destroy 
that death forever. Jesus didn't come to serve, but to be—he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus entered into our world to enter into our lives. Jesus came to make it personal. God personally wants to enter into our suffering and and weeps and is angry over our suffering. And we should weep. Just as Jesus looked on the sorrow of those that were gathered and he wept with their sorrow, when we see the and feel the sorrow of those that we live with and we serve with and we go to church with and that are part of our family and our brothers and sisters, it should be a motivator for us to be engaged in, in weeping with them and, and turning their sorrow to joy. And we should be angry at suffering. We should be angry at death in all its forms, whether it's poverty or sickness or racism or abortion or war or cruelty or any sort of um, marginalization of people. Those are all forms of death that Jesus came to do away with. And we should be angry at death just like Jesus is in all of its forms. Jesus comes to show that God knows our suffering, that God joins mysteriously in our suffering, and that ultimately he conquers our suffering by taking the ultimate suffering on himself and his own son in our flesh. And the writer of Hebrews says this in, in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, we have a high priest that can sympathize with us. Or he says it in the negative. He says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. He says, Jesus is our high priest. He can sympathize with us. And that's why God came. That's why Jesus Jesus came to make it personal, and Jesus came to enter into our suffering and into our sorrow personally. Jesus came to feel the pain of death and the sorrow of our despair, but Jesus came angry and ready to do something about it. Jesus came to go to the cross to end our sorrow and our despair. And his statement to Martha is true. That's why both statements are important. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, do you believe this? And so both answers are important. His answer to Mary in the weeping and the despair and the sorrow and the entering into the hurt and the anger of death, but also the answer to Martha, that he is the resurrection and the life, and that he's come to put an end to death. And all who believe in him will live and never die. Not never die in this life, never die spiritually, but they will live with him forever. And he asked Mary, Martha, do you believe it? Both of his answers, both the truth and the tears, the truth of Jesus and the tears of Jesus are important. And so he gives both answers and he enters into our lives personally in both ways. He enters into our lives in truth and he enters into our lives in tears. Because Jesus came to have a relationship with us personally. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God unlike any other so-called God. That you are not on Mount Olympus uh, making sport of human lives and filled with all the same foibles and faults of pride and arrogance and deceit and greed that humans are like the Roman Greek gods are. Thank you that you're not indifferent, that you're just some sort of spiritual essence that just exists in a cloud somewhere and we're supposed to somehow join you in some way. God, you're not like those other gods, so-called. You are the creator, God of the universe, master of everything. 
perfectly complete, perfect in love, perfect in justice, mercy, relationship with your Son and your Holy Spirit. And you humble yourself to come into our world in the flesh to grieve with us, to weep with us, to suffer with us, and to bring us the truth so that we can have a relationship with you. So Lord, I thank you that Jesus had both answers for Martha and Mary. That he had the answer of the truth, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and those that come to him will never die. But he also had the answer of tears, of weeping with us who weep, and entering into our sorrow, and being willing to suffer and die on the cross to put an end to it. So Father, we just praise you. I hope we see you with a new clarity. I hope we can love you for who you are, because you are both truth and tears in your relationship with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to take communion to remember that, what Jesus was weeping over himself and remembering, that he would go to the cross. And so we come now to communion, and this is a meal, uh, remembrance uh, for those that believe in Jesus and have made him the Savior of their lives and seek to follow him. And, and for those that just need a... A time of coming close to him. This is another way in which Jesus has made things personal for us, that we can come personally into the presence of God. Our only mediator is Jesus because of what he's done on the cross. And so we come to communion now, and if I can have my helpers come, we'll take this communion together.